Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are looking at what the midterm elections in the United States mean for the future of American foreign policy and the transatlantic relationship, and in fact the future of the world. To help us make sense of this, we have an all-star cast. Joining us down the line from Arizona is Craig Kennedy, who is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, um, but was also uh, for many years the director of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and I think has done more to help Europeans understand where the United States is and what it means for us than almost anyone else on the planet. Um, sitting here with me in London, we have Jeremy Shapiro, back to the podcast, research director at ECFR, and our resident explainer of all things uh, to do with Donald Trump and other bits of the US administration. And um, also uh, on a flying visit to London is Anna Kuchenbecker, who is the director for development and partnerships at ECFR, normally based in our Berlin office. But uh, is also someone who spent many years living in the United States of America and was the deputy director of the Aspen Institute in Berlin before she joined ECFR. So, Craig, seeing as you're, you're sitting in Arizona, you can tell us what the elections mean, uh, particularly also outside of the Beltway. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Mark. So the elections um, didn't really have that many surprises. Uh, the Republicans lost the House, which was expected. Uh, the numbers of seats that they lost were roughly the same as what Ronald Reagan lost in 1982. It, uh, when he lost 26 seats, uh, Republican seats, it wasn't as bad as Bill Clinton in 1994 when he lost 54 seats or Barack Obama in 2010 when he lost 64 seats. The Republicans gained uh, three, maybe even four seats. We'll see how some of the recounts go uh, in the United States Senate. So, uh, but that was sort of a funny result in its own right. Uh, there was a time early on in the election process when people would have said they should have should have won six uh, new seats just because of the way the uh, Senate races operate. There were many more Democrats that were vulnerable than uh, Republicans. So what does it mean? What it means is that the House of Representatives will become ground zero for the resistance to the Trump administration. It'll be mean that the United States Senate will focus mainly on controlling the House of Representatives and pushing back on many of their attempts to uh, go after the president of the United States. And it will mean that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, will have a real live opposition enemy to run against in 2020. Um, I don't have any uh, great inside information into the uh, White House, but my Except guess your is... Son. <laughs> well, careful now. Uh, <laughs> But I would, but I would suggest that if I was a political uh, advisor inside the White House, the idea of having Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House 
uh, would be a pretty appealing uh, idea. Uh, having a San Francisco liberal, which is one of those great terms that Republicans have liked since uh, the 1960s, to run against, at least until the Democrats uh, pick a candidate, uh, will be pretty interesting. I mean, we can get into what it means for foreign policy. I actually think that this election doesn't mean much for foreign policy and probably doesn't mean much for Europe. Uh, but we can go into that later on. Okay. So, Jeremy, do you, do you agree with, um, with Craig's assessment? I, I always agree with Craig's assessment. It's just easier that way. But, um, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I would maybe add a little bit to it. Um, I think that, you know, that what's different, what, what was very interesting to me about this election is that despite all of the sort of abnormalcy of the Donald Trump presidency and of Donald Trump's political strategy, the, the election results are, pretty, as Craig was saying, are pretty normal in terms of midterm results. And they, they show, as I think the general election did, that, um, that uh, Donald Trump is sort of, for better and for worse, subject to the normal laws of politics in the United States, that he's more of a Republican than of a uh, populist um, in terms of the political, uh, in terms of the political laws in the United States. But at the same time, and I think this is important to understand, he has a distinct strategy from previous incumbent presidents. He has uh, almost all previous American presidents of recent days have, once they got into office, have thought about having, uh, of capturing the middle, of reaching out to the middle. Uh, and they've had a strategy which was very interested in appealing to, to voters beyond their base. Donald Trump has not taken that strategy. He has decided to live or die with his base. That means a couple of things relative to this election. It means that having lost the House doesn't matter as much uh, because, yeah, he can run against it. That's great. But he was going to run against his own government anyway, so he doesn't really need it. Um, but it also means that, um, uh, that he's more focused on, on, on firing up the base and on negative, tra negative, um, negative policies anyway. Uh, I think that the, the second thing it means is that, uh, he's, he's gonna be very focused in the next couple of years on this, on, uh, well, let me put it to you this way. The, the Republicans have a demographic problem which is that their, their share of the electorate just demographically is going down. So they've become a minority party, which runs the government through a series of institutional innovations from the 18th century, which allow a minority party to run it. And that problem gets harder for them every couple of years. Having selected a base strategy, it means that they now need to have a, 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 a political program of on the first instance, firing up their base through going to the through going to the extremes, and in the second instance, suppressing the vote of the other side, which is about a lot about suppressing uh, voter registration and suppressing uh, people getting to the polls, and also about discouraging the other side. And so, I think that's going to be the dynamic that we're going to see in policy for the Can next we couple of years. Pat that a bit though, because you say that he he's um, most people reach. Uh, out beyond their kind of party base to other things. I mean, isn't that exactly what he's done? His base is not, is it, it's a cross, it's a bipartisan base. He's basically taking a lot of the traditional Republican voters and then he's supplementing it with white, uh, 
disenfranchised people. That's that's how. That's absolutely not right. I mean, look, there is a there is a trend of those white. Lower, uh, lower middle class voters away from the Democrats. But if you look at what happened in 2016, that's not the revolution. The revolution is not that, uh, is not that white voters, lower middle class white voters fled from the Democratic Party any more than they had in the previous four years. Uh, the revolution is that, is that Democratic voters didn't turn out like they turned out for Barack Obama. Uh, and so, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton would have won Michigan if the same number of black voters had turned out and assumedly voted for her. Um, so it's, uh, yes, there is some shifting of lower middle class vo voters, white voters to the Republicans. That's been a trend since Ronald Reagan, and it hasn't accelerated. Uh, what's really going on is that the Republicans are, have decided uh, and this is a decision that they sort of started to make in 20, after the 2012 election and have, and Donald Trump made for them in the 2016 election is that they're not going to try to expand their coalition to, uh, Hispanics or Asians or, uh, or, you know, middle of the road or moderate Democrats or anything. To the contrary, they're going to play on that base and use the institutional mechanisms of the American state to run the country on a minority basis. And that every four years, that's going to get harder. Let, let me push back just a little bit on this. I mean, first, uh, there was a, a record number of uh, union members that voted for Republicans in 2016. Yeah, it's a record number in 2012, too. That's the point. Is that well, it, well, 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 let me finish. And this probably the same we'll see yesterday uh, or Tuesday. Tuesday had the highest turnout since uh, 1966 for a midterm election. If you remember 1966, well, we, none we of you did, but I, I would like remember. It, like it was yesterday, right? It's middle of uh, Vietnam War. Were you uh, wearing blue that day? I was. Uh, I was wearing blue. Yeah. Um, no, so so look look at the 1994 and 2010 elections when the Democrats lost lots of House seats. In part, presidents when they come into office play to their base the first two years. They try to do big things that are going to reward their base. For Bill Clinton, it was trying to get health care through. Uh, remember Hillary Care before there was Obamacare? And for, for Barack Obama, it was also health care. And in both cases, it appealed heavily to their base and alienated enough people that they suffered, in, in Obama's case, a record number of House seat losses in the midterm election. You're absolutely right. The Republicans do have a demographic problem. And one of the things that you'll see, I think, is uh, various efforts to address it. One of the most interesting Senate campaigns that didn't get much attention was in Michigan, where a very talented black entrepreneur named John James uh, ran surprisingly well against a very entrenched and popular Debbie Stabenow, uh, a woman that uh, I think I helped on her very first campaign back in 1990. Um, so you'll start to see more of those kind of candidates. Well, Kanye is obviously going to run after after Donald Trump. Um, uh 
in uh, in 2020. <laughs> no, Craig, I, I, uh, I agree with Jeremy so that, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, general election and then now the midterms have, have uh, very much followed uh, the pattern in, uh, in American uh, politics. And uh, again, it's, it's, re it's crucial uh, to, to mobilize people. And, and this is really the decisive factor. And I think uh, here it's also important to to note that this whole Kavanaugh thing uh, has has played to, uh, well for the Republicans and and was probably really uh, decisive in in then uh, mobilizing and getting people out uh, for Trump. What what I think what is one conclusion that I draw from this uh, election is that uh, you know Trump uh, put himself on the ballot and uh, it didn't. Uh, it didn't turn out that badly as many predicted uh, or, or saw. And uh, I think uh, over the past uh, two years, um, the impression was that, uh, you know, many Republicans, moderate Republicans would hold their noses and, uh, and, and swallow a lot in terms of style and rhetoric and, and being divisive from Trump because they got a lot what was important to them, the Supreme Court nomination, the tax cuts, um, the attempt to, to, to cut Obamacare and, uh, and all these things. Um, and uh, with the midterms losing the, uh, losing the House, that this would, you know, if, if Trump does badly, that this would turn Republicans away uh, from him. But that hasn't happened. I think what Republican candidates have seen that uh, Trump helped them to win. And this is true for the Senate seats. And I think it will, in the end, will make the Republicans more Trumpian and, and less moderate. And in, in this case, I think it's a success for Trump. He was able to, to, to consolidate his grip on the party. So um, one of the, before we move on to the foreign policy things, one of the bridges between the elections and foreign policy is, is the whole question of impeachment and, um, and the Russia investigations. It was interesting that the very first casualty of the elections was uh, the attorney general who got fired almost immediately, leading to all sorts of speculation about, well, about Mueller. Sorry? Not the last casualty. <laughs> Um, but uh, to what extent do you think the the, um, the Democrats are likely to to plunge into a kind of impeachment campaign now that they have the House of Representatives? Is that also key to to Trump's re-election hopes that, um, that that this will prove as as popular with the with the public as the attempts to impeach Bill Clinton were in the nineties? So so. My my sense is that this is going to be a multi-front uh, war from the House. Uh, just about every committee will be doing investigations and oversight hearings. Um, I'm sure that the uh, new chair of House Interior uh, will have uh, uh, Secretary Zink uh, before them if he still is in office uh, in January. Uh, almost immediately, my guess is Maxine Waters will have a whole series of oversight hearings. You're going to see lots of activity all the way around. The, the issue of, of going after impeachment, it was in interesting. I mean, uh, Democrats were generally careful about how they talked about this for the most part, unless they were in completely you know, hardcore blue state uh, areas like California or uh, 
New York or Massachusetts. Um, I think this is going to be one of those strategic questions that they'll have to ask themselves, probably with a lot of help from uh, polling, uh, to figure out whether it really helps them to uh, push for impeachment. Impeachment will not succeed. You need 66 votes in the United States Senate, 67, actually, uh, to uh, impeach a president, and they're not going to get that at this point, Uh, not even close, unless something really uh, startling comes out that would change some Republican minds. He'd have to shoot somebody on a different street than Fifth Avenue. Uh They have to decide whether uh, it's, it's worth it. And, you know, there's many Republicans that will say one of the big mistakes they made in uh, against Bill Clinton was going after him on impeachment because they it, it became pretty clear that the American people didn't weren't happy about it. So I, I it, we'll see what happens on that. I'm sure Jeremy has a different view, though. Uh, not not entirely differently. I think that the the Democrats will do a strategic analysis, which will rely heavily on the on the Bill Clinton precedent, and then they will decide and they will decide amongst themselves in some sort of smoke filled room or vape filled room, I guess these days that um, that it's a bad idea strategically to impeach the president, and then they will do it anyway. Um, because they will have such a, yeah, well, also because they're not, they're, 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 there is no Democratic Party, right? There is no, there is no vape-filled room that actually gets to decide these things. And um, in fact, they will have such pressure from their base and from the new congressman that they elected who ran on this uh, and from uh, their, the sort of activist class that I think they'll, I think it will overwhelm the, the strategic decision that Craig, I think, very accurately points out. But I think at the same time, it's not clear that it will make that much of a difference in the dynamic, because regardless of whether there's impeachment or not, as Craig said, there's going to be a thousand and one investigations. And impeachment on a certain level would just be one more arena in that fight. Uh, and what what Donald Trump told us very, very clearly uh, right after the election, and it wasn't a surprise to anybody, is that he's not going to go quietly into that night. He is going to have a different strategy toward this sort of investigation um, potpourri that um, then, say, Bill Clinton or, uh, or George W. Bush had. Interestingly, Obama never had to go through this, even with an opposition Congress. Um, and that will be that he's going to attack it was Benghazi uh, in part, yeah, uh, but it was much less. He's going to attack them. He's going to counter-investigate them. And ultimately, uh, there will be no institutional effect of these investigations. It will have to be decided in the court of public opinion. And I don't know how that will come out. So, Anna, do you want to st- kick off the, the discussion about what it means for foreign policy? Because I think that's one of the uh, things that traditionally happens to presidents when they lose their majority in, uh, in Congress. Um, they often uh, become more active in foreign policy. And, and Donald Trump has not just lost his majority in Congress. He's also lost most of the adults in the room um, who were meant to be constraining him in the first half. Are we going to see Jim Mattis wandering off? Are we going to see an activist foreign policy for the next couple of years? 
Yeah, no, um, no, definitely. I, I think here again, it will it will uh, basically follow the traditional pattern, so that uh, presidents uh, who who are weakened at home, uh, you know, may go off on on foreign policy. But let me first say, so I think that for many Europeans, uh, the picture of 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 the U.S. You know, in a, in a way, has been saved. So uh, they have their the, the the good the the good America is coming back. So I think that's uh, that's important. Um, I guess um, the Democrats will probably, even though that in, in in terms of that that the big lines may not change of the administrations. I think that topics Democrats will definitely um, you know push for is is Russia. Um, because uh, they will they will turn the heat on on the you know the the Russia investigation. They will be very interested that uh, that Trump uh, takes a harder line. Uh, they don't like this uh, cozying up to to dictators that uh, Trump has shown, especially with Putin during this Helsinki uh, meeting meeting with North Korea and then also with Saudi Saudi Arabia in in, in terms of Khashoggi. So I guess when uh, I, I believe it's on November 7th, this, um, this uh, no, on November uh, 11th with, with Putin. So um, yeah, Trump has, has to make an uh, effort so to, to not to repeat the Helsinki uh, disaster and ensure that his approach bears some fruit. Yeah, yeah. Primarily, um, I would say I think I think as we've discussed that uh, that in this way Trump will be a normal president. He will move to foreign policy, where he'll find freedom of action uh, in a sort of Trumpian way. He'll look for quick victories, which um, implies um, you know could even imply these sort of very short, decisive uh, military actions on the sort of pattern of. Uh, the American invasion of Granada in 1983. Um, you know, Trump is really good at doing very little and then declaring victory. So where and is he going to invade? What's the, what's I, I, I don't know, but I wouldn't make any plans, Mark. Um, Brussels. Yeah, Brussels. <laughs> yeah, that can't be harder than Grenada. Um, it has been done before. Poor old Brussels uh, seems yeah. to be the first place to get. I think, you know, the, the most interesting thing to for Europe is to consider uh, the, the trade agenda. Um, I think that, you know, within the, within the administration, there's some pretty smart trade people who have been trying to get the president to concentrate his trade agenda on China and to, uh, in fact, even enlist Europe in the effort to, um, uh, to take a strong trade approach to, to strong approach toward China on trade, intellectual property issues. Uh, but I think that the president, he has a bit of a problem coming up, which is that he's been doing all this stuff on trade. It's been supposedly oriented toward reducing the American trade deficit, and the American trade deficit is going up, uh, which is, you know, a surprise to exactly zero economists, uh, because the trade deficit is a macroeconomic phenomenon and the fiscal deficit is pushing it up. But, um, but it means that he's going to probably double down on his trade agenda, and he's probably going to turn back to Europe. His advisors will try to 
restrain him, but I think in the new environment that, that Anna just described, they may have a lot of trouble because Trump f- fundamentally believes that as bad as China is, Germany is just as bad, and Europe is just as bad, and that could mean a sort of revival of the trade war that that sort of went into ceasefire this past July. But we also have seen that Democrats, you know, are not, they, they also like protectionism to a certain extent. We have seen that in the, in the, yeah, in the campaign the and the Bernie Sanders. I think that's one of the reasons why this is an attractive, yeah. this can be an attractive agenda for the president because he's going to have a lot of freedom of action there. I mean, I think, frankly, he can do it for the most part without the Congress anyway, but he's not going to get a sort of sustained critique even from the Democratic Congress for doing this. Yeah. So let let me uh, just give a slightly different view. Um, First, just in foreign policy in general, uh, the president's going to be really focused on two places. He's going to be very, very focused on Asia and especially China. It's where the administration is investing more resources than any other place. It's the place where the president himself pays more attention than anything else. And then the Middle East, in part because of Israel, in part for other reasons. Uh, The Putin meeting that's coming up is a Middle East meeting. This is not about Europe. And as a matter of fact, I I think it's fair to say that in terms of foreign policy, um, you just don't hear much about Europe anymore in Washington. Um, I think that there's... uh, very little uh, expectation that Europe would be helpful on on uh, China, maybe maybe the UK, maybe France, but not much else. And that um, you have enough problems of your own that uh, maybe you're not isolationist, but you're very inward looking right now, and it's hard to engage you to do uh, big projects like figuring out how to deal with uh, China. On the trade front, again, I think China is going to be the focus. Uh, We'll see what happens when uh, Trade Representative Lighthizer meets with uh, Cecilia Malmstrom. I think it's next week. Um, You know, apparently there is something close to uh, a set of uh, agreements that could be made they still have some very tough issues, uh, you know, this weird differential in vehicle tariffs between the United States and Europe, uh, a policy that I believe was put in place in the 1970s when the United States wanted to uh, shore up the German and French economies. This is back when France still made automobiles. Uh, and agriculture, which is always going to be a sticking point in any deal between the United States and Europe. But Europe is not the big game. Uh, You hear more talk in Washington about uh, a U.S.-Japan treaty, um, how to start up something like TPP light that would work. Uh, The Japanese are very, very aggressive in pushing these ideas and others uh, with the administration. So I, I, I think Europe should be relieved. Uh, the next two years, no one's going to really care about you. No, I, I think, look, look, Craig, I actually completely agree with that. It's just the, the only point that I'm making is that if you look at Robert Lighthizer's strategy, that you've clearly uh, articulated it very well. He definitely wants to concentrate on China and secondarily on the WTO, 
Um, and he's definitely at least hoping to park the European issue and uh, maybe even maybe even get the Europeans to help him on the not on China strategically, but on China trade issues, because um, he thinks that he wants to have a China first strategy, as I understand it. Um, I think that the president might be a problem for that. No, see, I, I, I disagree, Jeremy. I, you know, the president was obsessed with uh, especially Germany. Uh, uh, until about July of this year, when the Baltic presidents were in town, they got an extra hour with the president. And in part, he kind of walked them through his beefs with Germany. You know, he started out with Dieselgate. Uh, how can you trust them if they... Uh, uh, he still has those beefs. He's mentioned them several times since then. He has, he has but it's not front and center anymore. And when Europeans go in to see administration officials, and even the few that get to see the president, this is not where he goes anymore. He's much more focused on China. Uh, listen, this is not a guy that is famous for his long-term commitment to certain themes. Uh, uh, he does, but he, he returns to this issue quite a lot. And uh, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm maybe predicting a little bit into the future here, but uh, I think that the issue of the trade deficit is going to become something that Donald Trump is very frustrated by, that he's criticized about. He has made specific promises about reducing it. It's going to go up about 10% this year. Um, and he deeply believes in his soul that uh, that the way that you reduce the trade deficit is by changing unfair trade rules with countries like Germany and China. And I think when he sees that all the stuff that they're doing on China hasn't gotten anywhere, he's going to look for other targets. But I'm not even sure that Europe has to be his focus for it to uh, suffer from Trumpian policies. I mean, uh, when the president goes off to Iran... <laughs> It's Europeans who get uh, caught in the front line of that. Um, the INF Treaty is another example of Europeans suffering from, from something which wasn't specifically aimed at them. Um, maybe as we kind of run out of time, it might be worth wondering what, whether there might be any big surprises uh, in the next period of time from a European perspective. Uh, what is the, the, the next? I mean, uh, either in terms of... Uh, new uh, institutions which the Trump administration decides to, to weaken or destroy or different uh, priorities which, which spring up, which might uh, have collateral effects for Europeans? Well, so the, the one thing that I would urge you to watch would be what happens to Secretary Mattis uh, if he decides to leave for the last two years of this first term. It probably will cause some uh, disruption at NATO and in terms of European defense. My guess is that someone similar to Mattis will take that job. Uh, the same thing with some of the other uh, key uh, positions on trade, not just Lighthizer, but uh, Commerce, which uh, where Ross has played a much more aggressive role. Same thing with Treasury, with Mnuchin. Um, I, I think those could changes in the cabinet could actually have some uh, deleterious effects for uh, Europe. 
let me just get back though to one thing that Jeremy said that I, I agree with, but I think there's a, a different interpretation. Uh, he has not been he has not been able to deal with trade deficits. But one of the things that that um, Donald Trump has understood is that one man's trade deficit is another man's uh, leverage in a negotiation. Uh, you know, the United States sends one hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of goods to China. China sends five hundred and what twenty five billion dollars worth of goods to the United States. Uh, they can put tariffs on all of our stuff, and we still have $350 billion of goods that we can put tariffs on, that we can restrict, that we can put quotas on. Uh, in, and I'd say the same thing with Europe. Uh, any country that has a big positive trade surplus with the United States should be concerned because he sees it as a leverage point. You are your economy is dependent on selling stuff here. If I shut that off, you have a problem. It's why the German automakers are spending so much time and energy in Washington trying to convince the president not to do something radical on vehicle tariffs, even though I mean I think everybody agrees that it doesn't make sense why American vehicles going into Europe uh, have a higher tariff regime than what affects vehicles coming into the United States. But they are very, very concerned about that. And he sits there and looks at trade deficits as a mark of vulnerability for other countries. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it very much depends on how much he will get under pressure uh, at home and uh, how uh, adventurous this will make him uh, abroad. And uh, regarding the economy, I think it's important to, to, uh, to, to consider so that he had, has lost the house, although the economy is booming. This is not going to, to go on forever. So 2020, um, he will probably take adventurous steps uh, where he thinks that this will uh, keep the economy on track, uh, which will be important for him to 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 uh, potentially win the election in 2020. So maybe last question I can ask you just for a one word answer, because, um, you know, the election is the latest piece of intelligence that we have to decide whether we're looking at another two years or another six years of, of Donald Trump. Um, Craig, do you want to go first? Two or six? Uh, I think it's going to be six. Jeremy? Six, yeah. Anna? <laughs> I'm afraid to say six, yeah. Okay, what a cheery note to end on. So we'll have plenty more opportunity to come back to the three of you to discuss the, the Trump administration over the next six years. <laughs> um, there's one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our uh, bookshelf uh, segment. Um, uh, Anna, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? What's on my bookshelf? Well, we recently had at uh, the Berlin office uh, John Mearsheimer, The Great Delusion, and uh, I'm still reading this book. And um, this is a grand critique of uh, American liberal uh, um, foreign policy. He calls it liberal hegemony. Liberal in the sense of, in the European sense, not in the, in the uh, American sense. And... Uh, yeah, he kind of uh, argues for um, for a foreign policy that takes more into uh, nationalism of, of of other countries, and then uh, 
um, realism in, into account, and I, I, I just feel my my own thinking is uh, strongly challenged. So I'm enjoying reading this book. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, I just finished uh, *Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari, which is a uh, a brief history of humankind. It's basically the story of our species. Um, and uh, as a friend of mine sort of summarized the bottom line, it is, we are awful. It is the sort of story of how humans first wiped, uh, Homo sapiens first wiped out other human species, then uh, basically wiped out all other large mammals, and now have sort of turned to um, wiping out uh, the rest of the planet. Uh, so, um, you know, that, it made me feel a little bit better about myself. And what's on, what's on your bookshelf, Craig? Well, I have two. One is James Barr's uh, book, Lords of the Desert. Uh, it's about the competition between the U.S. and U.K. in the Middle East starting in the 1930s. You realize the special relationship has not always been very special. And then the second one is um, uh, an odd book. It's called Coming of Democracy. It's an academic tome, and it's really about the emergence of, of modern politics in the United States that starts with the uh, election of 1820 and goes through the Jacksonian period and how campaigning and attitudes about presidential politics uh, dramatically changed in that uh, period. Uh, it, uh, it's a very good book to read if you want to understand uh, the current period in American politics. Who's the author of that one, Craig? Uh, Mark Cheatham, The Coming of Democracy. It's Johns Hopkins Press. Okay, so we'll put links up to all of these publications on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let your friends know about it through social media, but also head to the ratings and reviews page on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on and give us a great review. But for now, from Craig Kennedy, Jeremy Shapiro, Anna Kuchenbecker, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenkwaj, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atsinaro.